Welcome to TechnoViews, a new series of interviews with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society and culture in Asia and the world. My name is Gonzalo Santos. I'm an assistant professor here at the Hong Kong Institute of the Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Hong Kong. I'm delighted to have here with me Professor uh, Michael Hersfeld, um, Ernest E. Monrad Professor of the Social Sciences uh, at Harvard University. And uh, Michael, I, I know that you have a long-standing interest in craftsmanship and the transmission of craft knowledge. I mean, one of your first books was, on, um, was based on extensive uh, fieldwork in small artisan workshops in, in Greece. And uh, here at, the, at Hong Kong U, I have a Common Core course uh, on technology, power, and culture in the global age. And of course, one of the themes in the, in the course is the issue of craftsmanship in, in Asia. And I know that you are now starting, or actually you have started last year, a project on artisans and apprentices uh, in a Bangkok neighborhood, focusing specifically on Thai goldsmiths, right? Um, could you tell us, you know, what took you to, to study um, craftsmanship in Thailand? Well, there are two parts to that, of course. One is about <laughs> craftsmanship and the other is about Thailand. Maybe I should start with Thailand. Uh, at a middle point in my career, after I'd been working for many years in Greece and to some extent also in Italy, I felt the need to do something new. They'd become very familiar places. Um, and although actually the work in, um, in, uh, uh, in Greece on artisanship was not the first research that I did in that country, it had always been something I wanted to do. Um, and when I went to Thailand, I was struck by some unexpected similarities between Thailand and Greece. And so teasing out the bases of those similarities, as well as the differences, um, has been a very much of a preoccupation of mine ever since. It's very easy to take two adjacent countries like Greece and Italy, for example, or Italy and Portugal, and say, look, these are southern European countries, they have certain things in common. Uh, the problem is that it's become too obvious, and anthropology, I think, proceeds best uh, through a series of comparisons that shock, that aim to shock, that aim to shock people out of their received ideas about how things are connected. Now, in that context, uh, artisanship, and I prefer the less gendered term right. to craftsmanship, yeah. artisanship is a, uh, a very uh, good way to begin because, first of all, artisans represent, uh, for many people, the traditional uh, activities uh, that are associated with some notion of a primordial culture. Now, as anthropologists, we know there's no such thing as a primordial culture. Culture changes, it's a process, and so on and so forth. In that case, of course, the locus of production uh, among artisans then becomes a focus of interest. How actually do we reconcile what we know about the labile and uh, constantly moving status of cultural identity uh, to the often quite surprisingly fixed ideas that, that artisans and their promoters like to present of their work. And Greece and Thailand are both countries that place a great deal of emphasis on the idea that uh, 
some of their best traditions are represented in the activities of artisans. Mm. Yeah, perhaps that's a good way to start, to start with conceptual questions about you know, how to define craft knowledge or how to define artisanship, as you were calling it earlier. Yeah, it's a more gender-neutral kind of way of talking about it. And, 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 and more specifically, um, you know, how do we think about the opposition between arti artisanry on the one hand, so uh, to some extent uh, work that involves um, some kind of um, effort to perfect with your hands and with your body, right? And, and that other thing, that other concept that starts to emerge in Western Europe and North America around the 19th century, technology, right? So how to draw the boundary between you know, notions of artisanship and notions of technology? Well, at the risk of being a bit simplistic, I suppose what one could say is that uh, in some European and North American countries, and by the way, I really dislike the term the West uh, because right, it's yes. such a conflation of so many different things. But in some uh, Western European and North American countries, um, one could argue that in the 19th century, uh, there was a great burgeoning of the distinction between craft and art, and that as these countries became more fixated on the, uh, on the benefits that seemed to accrue to them from advancing technology, uh, the, the high society position of art began to be replaced by the equally high evaluation by the wealthy uh, members of society of technology. And we see this reflected in education. In the 19th century, a humanities curriculum was very prestigious. Uh, if you look now at how professors are paid, for mm. example, in most American universities, you'll discover that the scientists are receiving much higher salaries than the people who are classified as humanists. And we social scientists find ourselves somewhere in the middle. Uh, this hierarchy of knowledge, which in my view has very little to do with the actual value of the knowledge in question, reflect the preoccupations of the dominant classes in the social structure of, of these countries. And did you find similar tensions in, uh, I mean, in Thai society and culture? Indeed. Uh, Thai um, society, in a way, reflects very much uh, the influence of the former colonial powers, particularly British uh, and, and, and French, and more recently, uh, uh, American. Um, and what this means is that uh, there's a constant reaching for what, in that 2004 book uh, about Greece, I called the global hierarchy of values as an attempt to climb up it. One of the similarities that Greece and Thailand display is a condition of being very beholden to the colonial powers for their independence as countries without ever once admitting that they were in any sense colonial subjects. Uh, and this is the phenomenon that I call crypto-colonialism. Uh, there are, of course, many other countries that can be so described. But I think it's very interesting to look at craft in that particular context because in many ways craft is what attracts people to the picturesque, right? Uh, tourists, for example, will go and look at how uh, artisans make beautiful objects that are somehow representative of some bedrock tradition of, the, of those countries. And in a strange way, what is seen as glorifying the, the historically deep traditions of those countries also becomes a basis for condescension. Mm. Uh, these other countries, the colonial countries, are uh, now boasting a very high level of proficiency in technology. Uh, I think the balance between Western Europe and East Asia is very definitely shifting now, but uh, up till recently, it was those so-called Western countries 
that were the technological leaders, and therefore they were in a position uh, to advance uh, an argument implicit, or not sometimes even quite explicit, uh, to the effect that, uh, that uh, they were in a position to judge, and therefore, uh, yes, it was very nice that these countries had all these wonderful arts and crafts. Uh, that made them worthy objects of, of the rather voyeuristic gaze of tourism, and it was a very good reason to encourage them in that direction, and actually in some cases to discourage uh, through various uh, structural means uh, the development of technological prowess. And I think that's one of the reasons why we now talk about North and South, because the North, in a way, again, I don't like these geographical designations, yes. but for convenience, let's keep it for the moment. The North was actually trying to make sure that the South would not progress technologically too much, because just as the technologically savvy social classes in those Western countries were uh, now getting more and more power, and allied, of course, to uh, economic knowledge. Uh, so uh, they wanted to project this also globally. And so what you see today is that countries like Greece and Thailand are seen predominantly as places tourists go to. They go to gaze on the exotic other, where uh, the production that is encouraged is indeed a, uh, a production of so-called traditional crafts. Thailand is a very interesting example because regardless of who's in power, a policy that was initiated under Thaksin, the fallen uh, former prime minister, now in exile, uh, has been carried on by his detractors, including the present uh, uh, military government. And that policy is called one, uh, one product, one thumb on one product, OTOP. Uh, and it's, it's a deliberate attempt uh, to turn the country into a vast factory in, in which each area, each town, each district is producing a specific product. So people are now- A specific craft? A particular craft product. And that locks people into uh, a mode of production that is actually not that of the traditional artisans at all, but, sell, but it involves selling these products as, uh, as uh, traditional objects. So this feeds the exoticism of the uh, of, of the visitors, it feeds the sense of hierarchy among countries, and it allows the authorities uh, to demand uh, obedience to what is in fact a factory structure spread over an entire country. Yeah, that's sort of, yeah, it's interesting that you're raising this issue about a tension between producing craft products for the sake of doing it, which I suppose is a certain tradition of artisanry, and doing it for the sake of money. Um, and it's interesting that we start in those northern countries, we don't like northern, southern divisions and so no, on and so forth, <laughs> but sure. in those northern countries, that just at the same time that you started to see a strong association between crafts and certain national traditions, you also to start seeing a, um, the emergence of a strong discourse of nostalgia, right, surrounding, you know, artisans. Uh, and, and there is a sense, not just in popular culture, but even, you know, amongst uh, the social sciences, right? You know, there are very strong arguments about talking about de-skilling, you know, how or in which ways industrialization and the growth of monopoly capitalism with, ch with the changes in uh, technology and, f you know, forces of production that it implies, how does that lead, in some sense, to a process of de-skilling? Right, yes. that ultimately results in the loss 
of craft knowledge. So I'm thinking about the work of people like uh, Harry Braverman, that it's you know, an American socialist, political economist, who tends to be associated with this kind of, uh, with this kind of position. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, looking at you know, the situation in Thailand and also at your previous experience in Greece, you know, what's your position regarding this thesis of de-skilling? I mean, well, um, the defenders of the new technology always argue that it will create new jobs and therefore uh, it's not actually creating unemployment. That would be true if the kinds of people who had been trained to do the old kind of jobs could actually that easily be moved into new sorts of skills. In theory, that ought to be possible. Uh, let's not forget that technique, technology, and art in ancient Greek were all based on the root techne. Techne in modern Greek, it's still actually an actively used word. And in modern Greek, it still also covers a similarly wide range of ideas. So this categorical distinction among these, these three uh, areas is not in itself a necessity. But the act of de-skilling is, in fact, an act of class warfare. I tend to agree with, with Harry Braverman, and I, I think that his argument resonates very well with what we see as the production of precarity under neoliberal economic regimes today. Add to those neoliberal economic regimes uh, the concept of audit culture uh, put forward initially by Marilyn Strathern, of course a very distinguished anthropologist from Britain, and we see that uh, increasingly there is now a system driven not even so much anymore by nation state governments as it is by multinational companies and other kinds of organizations in which more and more people are made to feel more and more uncertain about the future and therefore more and more dependent on a system that devalues the skills they once had. So I think Braverman had identified a very important part of this process at a very early stage in its development. We now live at a point of real crisis. As you know, in Southern Europe in particular, but also in many other parts of the world, not only are we seeing waves of refugees from other places, we're also seeing increasing precariousness in the livelihoods of virtually everyone, including ourselves as academics. The move from tenured positions to more and more or higher and higher proportions of contract positions shows you that academics too now are being considered as workers whose product is not only being devalued, they're also being de-skilled in the sense that as students are given in some ways less and less training, uh, we have to develop simpler and simpler ways of working with them ourselves. Um, I think too much emphasis is often placed on the distinction between manual labor and, uh, and mental labor or intellectual labor. Uh, and this is a product of something that lies way back behind all of the developments we've just been talking about, but I think is also part of that same history, uh, namely the Cartesian view that there is a radical separation between mind and body, between the material and the symbolic. That also mapped very well onto the colonial project because the colonizers simply treated the people they colonized as ethnographic material, if you will, as inert object. People may be, but not people capable of ratiocination. They were pure rationality. Um, as Paul Rabinow has pointed out, this is also reflected in colonial town planning, for example. So the, what we're talking about here is one piece of a very large uh, process that is taking place globally. Uh, it's the negative side of whatever it is we mean by globalization. And in that process, 
the danger to artisans is not so much that they will lose their skills as that their skills will be devalued will, and, and they may indeed be forced then to go and work in factories uh, at jobs that require far less specialized skills and which therefore will not reward them with comparable wages. Is this an issue like of public debate in, in Thailand? I mean, I'm thinking also in connection with larger questions of, you know, cultural preservation and historical yes. preservation. Unfortunately, it's not very much of an issue of public debate in Thailand simply because it's so political and under the current political conditions, uh, political discussion is publicly discouraged. Right, so in working with, I mean, you've done extensive uh, field research already with Thai goldsmiths. I understand you started your project last year. Mm. Um, is, this, is this an issue that concerns them? Are they con do they see themselves as preservers of some kind of Thai artisanry tradition? I don't think that the goldsmiths I work with are very conscious of that. Of course, there are people, um, especially in the museum world, uh, and also in the tourism promotion world and, of course, in the OTOP organization as well. Uh, there are bureaucrats in particular who believe that, yes, this is the case, that Thailand has a very special place and should promote this kind of, of production. But public discussion uh, aside, I don't think that these artisans are really focused on very much more than doing the best work they can and trying to earn a decent living. Um, they get monthly wages, most of them. Some are paid by piecework. Uh, but in each case, uh, it's a relatively secure livelihood for somebody who, as a young man or woman, might otherwise not have been able to earn very much money at all. It requires quite a lot of skill. But whether it requires creativity, whether it requires artistic invention, will depend very much on the kind of goldsmith we're talking about. If we're talking about the high-end goldsmiths who produce for notable personages and charge enormous amounts of money for very specialized labor, it is indeed for them a kind of artistry, and they would represent it as the, the highest flowering of that particular part of, of Siamese tradition. But for the majority, certainly of the ones I work with, uh, there seems to be much less of that and much more of an interest in simply getting the job done as well as possible and making enough money to live. Do you see that same tension, those same hierarchies and attitudes towards, uh, you know, towards innovation and towards also um, the meanings of artisanry in your previous experience in Greece? Or do you see any contrasts between the Thai situation and the Greek situation? There are some interesting contrasts. Uh, whether these are the, uh, are the result of differences in my particular field situation in the two countries, or indeed of the very different political situations in the two countries. Because you mustn't forget that Greece is a country that was under a military dictatorship from 1967 through 1974, uh, but then, as a result of an extraordinary series of events, uh, transformed itself into what I would argue is one of the most robust democracies in the world, with strong governments of left and right in alternation. Um, and despite all of the economic pressures of those so-called <laughs> Western countries, um, uh, Greece has actually uh, managed to maintain that political system uh, very well. Nevertheless, one of the points I make in that uh, earlier work is that there is a political dimension to what you see in the workshops because the artisan does not teach the 
apprentice directly. The artisan uh, basically pushes the apprentice by refusing to teach him, or her, usually him. And the apprentice is constrained to, as they say, steal with his eyes. The one who does it well will be taken on board maybe even as a, an associate uh, and ultimately as a full partner in the business. Uh, uh, those who fail to be cunning enough drop by the wayside. This produces uh, a certain diamond in the rough personality, if you will, that is uh, then seen as your typical picturesque, exotic artisan. So this looks great because we can represent it as tradition, but on the other hand, the man is so rude you couldn't let him out in polite society. So mm -hmm. that relationship then becomes a, a small-scale model of the way that the small town of Rethymnos, where I did the work, is seen by people in the larger cities of Crete, the way Crete is seen in Athens, and above all, the way Greece as a country is seen by the more powerful players in the European Union. So there's a strongly political dimension mm. to the work in that you see in microcosm a dynamic that is re reproduced at many different levels of, of that scalar relationship. Whether that's going to turn out to be true of what's happening in Thailand, where ASEAN might well play the same role as the European Union, for all I know, that's something that remains to be seen. Um, I think it's very important that we as anthropologists not try to overpredict what we're going to find. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the great disagreements that we have with our colleagues in the other social sciences, and here I appeal to my identity as a professor of the social sciences, so I, you know, have, I'm supposed to have some sort of competence across the board. Obviously, I know more about our particular discipline than about the others, but I think it's fair to say that there is a significant difference in that we do not start with a hypothesis that we end up then feeling constrained to prove or disprove. What we are interested in is coming up with a deep understanding of how things work. If I therefore see in these workshops that these Thai artisans are indeed in some way reproducing aspects of the hierarchical uh, relationships that are so characteristic of current uh, Thai politics, then that's what I will say. But I have to find that out first. Now, they, there are a few indications. For example, um, in Crete, you have a system of clans, very much like what you see in China. Yeah. People are tied to each other by uh, kinship relations in the male line. And almost never does an artisan hire an apprentice, take on an apprentice who is his patrician. They try to avoid that as much as possible. For the few female artisans there are, it's irrelevant. But for the men, it's very important. And they, they were very surprised when I pointed this out to them. But I could show them numbers. And it was very clear that, that the vast majority did not have um, any relationship. And where there was a relationship, it usually turned out to be a final, in other words, by marriage or, mm -hmm. or through the mother. Whereas now, let me, let me say why this is important. Because um, then, you know, I would say, well, OK, so what about the apprentice? And the apprentice would normally be called parayos, which means a foster son. So this was a very different kind of relationship. Your apprentice was going to be somebody you had a rough relationship with, an unfriendly relationship with, until he really proved himself to be tough enough to stand up to everyone in the outside world. The Thais, on the other hand, say, no, no, no. We teach our apprentices. And I've seen it happen. So they do. They talk to them. 
yes, they expect them to put up with a certain amount of hardship. That's part of their training, but and it is actually, in a bodily sense, a very tough profession. But what was interesting is that they kept referring to themselves as being related to each other, as having a kinship relationship with each other. When I asked more specifically how they were related, they would often say, oh, he is a friend of mine. He was a friend of my father, or he was sent by a friend of my father. So the relationship actually wasn't literally one of kinship, but it was one that demanded trust. Now, the last thing you will find in those Greek workshops is trust, until the, they actually become partners. Apprentice to master and master to apprentice, that's not a trusting relationship. That's a relationship of open hostility. With the ties, it's very clear. You cannot be let into one of these workshops unless we can trust you. And when we are willing to trust you, then we know that, for example, we're not supposed to look too closely. We just have to assume that you are not going to be filching little bits of gold or even gold dust, of which there's an enormous amount flying around um, in, in, these, in these workshops. So I think that there is mm -hmm. uh, a potentially big political dimension, but I'm not going to emphasize that unless the research actually produces it. It's beginning to suggest something of that kind. Because obviously then, when you think about the larger political scene, some of the ambiguities that, that, that are inherent in what I've just described might also help to, to, to explain and explore the more ambiguous way in which Thai politics operates, very different from the extremely direct, confrontational, and indeed agonistic style of most Greek political encounters. One final question. I mean, I know you have uh, a, long, uh, a long history of engaging with engaged anthropology. I mean, you are a very committed and engaged anthropology. You clearly think that anthropology is not just uh, an ivory tower kind of discipline. Uh, not only that, it, and also it sits uncomfortably with other social sciences, perhaps. Uh, it is closer to an art in many ways than it is to a, um, to a science. But, um, but I wonder whether you see, you know, where is the engaged side of you in your uh, research on, uh, on artisanry. Well, um, let me first take yeah. issue with your saying that it's more of an art than a science. To my mind, a science is a form of knowledge that produces that knowledge in a way that accurately reflects the reality we've encountered. So actually, uh, there's a lot of pseudoscience coming out of many of mm. the social mm. science, sci sciences. I mean, when some economists tell you that they're not interested in people, they're only interested in model building, yes. especially when the models fail, you want to ask them why do they think that they're doing not just social science, but any kind of science at all. Uh, and it seems to me that, that it is much more unscientific to try to come up with a number crunching solution to a problem that actually is about inchoateness and ambiguity, which are very much parts of social life. And any attempt to deny that is itself thoroughly and fundamentally unscientific. So I would defend a purer notion of science than the popular one in that sense. Now, having said that, uh, engaged anthropology. To my mind, there's a big difference between applied anthropology and engaged anthropology. In applied anthropology, you get a contract from a government or a bank, and you go and sort out a problem. And much of that work is very valuable. If it helps to alleviate, for example, famine, slavery, who knows? There are certain situations in which the applied anthropologists have been able to do a lot of good. 
but they are still employees of institutions that do not have any independent, particularly if they're working for governments. Even if they're working for international NGOs, a lot of them, especially the United Nations uh, NGOs, can never actually be more than the aggregate of nation states allows them to be. If you're an academic, you are in an institution that supposedly guarantees you independence of thought and action, as long as you don't violate certain very basic norms. To me, engaged anthropology is anthropology that grows out of your research that possibly allows you to work with and help the community that you've studied, but maybe in other ways also allows you to draw conclusions about the society that might be beneficial. So rather than seeing myself as a crusading do-gooder, which I think is not a useful way uh, to go about things, I prefer to, uh, to see myself as somebody who has learned a great deal about human dignity from the people he's studied and who therefore feels obliged to give something back, especially when he feels that an injustice has been committed. So for example, in my first project in, uh, in Bangkok, I ended up looking at one small community that for 25 years resisted the authorities' attempts to evict it. They were on very tenuous legal grounds. Legally, in fact, they were in the wrong, as they themselves say. But there was an ethical issue, a big ethical issue, uh, that came up, which was simply that they offered, they had offered to be the guardians of what was in effect a historically important site without making claims to ownership, but on the condition that they would be allowed to continue to live there and to keep the place clean and ordered, as in fact they had been doing all along. And the authorities responded, A, by refusing, even to countenance such an idea, citing a law that everyone agrees is flawed, and mm -hmm. ultimately by sending in the army and other, uh, uh, and gangs of workers actually also, first to push out the uh, residents, but also to smash down the houses, and that included a number of houses of inestimable historical value, because they were actually examples of, of earlier, um, uh, of earlier uh, vernacular architecture, uh, architecture representing the everyday lives of Siamese people living in the capital uh, in the early uh, years of the currently reigning dynasty. Um, these people were very loyal to the existing powers that be, but that was not enough to protect them. Uh, and I felt that even though in the end we failed to stop the authorities from, from chasing them out, there are a few of them still there, very few now, um, at least by publicizing their case, we made sure that the news media represented the, the situation accurately. We gave them a sense of worth because we took them seriously, which the authorities did not. But we believe that everybody, every human being, carries theoretical and aesthetic and moral capacities inside himself or herself and therefore should be respected as such. And they taught us a lesson about human dignity in the face of adversity. Even though I think it's too late to save even the tiny remnant of that community, the lessons we can learn from that may help us work, if we're lucky, with the Thai authorities. Say, here Thailand has a type of community that actually might even be an exportable good. This might be a model. How do you deal with the fact that you have homeless populations and then you have some people living in archaeological sites. Only a very old-fashioned archaeologist today would say you can't have human beings living on an archaeological mm. site. 
Today, archaeologists are very much in the opposite direction. The bureaucrats, for reasons of their own, are very much out of that loop. They don't understand that. Uh, I've often said that the way to begin reforming the Bangkok bureaucratic system is to send every Bangkok, uh, Bangkok bureaucrat to live in a slum for three months. They would suddenly learn to respect those people. They would see how they cope with adversity. So I'm not trying to advocate for a program of anthropology that would intervene in every situation. That's applied anthropology, and there's a place for that for sure. What I'm trying to advocate for is an anthropology that will educate our fellow human beings at every level, bring back that core of fundamental respect for what it means to be human, and try through that to construct an ethic that is much more respective, uh, respectful, I should say, of, of cultural, class, religious, and other kinds of difference. Mm -hmm. In other words, that's respectful of diversity. And this speaks, it seems to me, to one of the fundamental strengths of anthropology. Again, let me put anthropology in the context of the social sciences more generally. Among the social sciences, social and cultural anthropology is, I think, the only one that has undergone 20 or 30 years of lacerating self-criticism, lacerating attacks on its own col colonial origins, lacerating deconstructions of fundamental texts, all of which led cynical observers to say anthropology is dying on its feet mm. because it can't take the heat like this. It, there's no discipline that could. We took the heat. Today, we do ethnography that is far better, I think, than what was done before. It's also far more varied in the range of topics that it, it deals with. Mm. Our discussion is proof of that, after all. And it seems to me that at this moment, anthropology also has an answer to those political scientists and economists who are advising governments and leading them or abetting, aiding and abetting them in the horrendous mistakes that they're making. Anthropology should have a more prominent role in the world. Now, we've seen that the neoliberal audit culture structures that dominate at the moment won't let anthropology in there. They are frightened of us. Mm. They think that we are dangerous because we actually help to make people see how they are being entrapped in this, in this system. I, I want to think that we really are dangerous in yeah. that way. I think we have an incredibly important task. But it, the hard part is to show people how that springs from our focus on very often very ordinary things. I mean, working with a carpenter or an iron, iron worker or a goldsmith, you come to admire the skill, you come to admire the hard work, but the other thing that you come to see is that the training of the body in these artisanal skills is also part of a system that locks people into certain class positions. And the trick is going to be to say, because we respect those skills, we want to create an, an environment in which you can exercise them without feeling that to do so, you have to accept the lowest rung of, 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 of society's many levels of hierarchy. So engaged anthropology, for me, is an anthropology that takes a full part in a discussion of where we're going. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. I mean, that was a great introduction to the craft, I would say, of anthropology. We are artisans. We yes, are artisans we are of the mind. I think artisan. that is true. Thanks for sharing your ideas. Thank and you. when are you going back to Thailand? I suppose you're going well, back Well, I hope to go yeah. back again at the end of the year. Um, I've been... Uh, I usually have done long periods of field work, but with these artisans, 
and I don't want to become a nuisance. There's also a question of consideration for them, and it's quite convenient for me to go for short periods. Uh, over, the, over time, I get to know them. They appreciate the fact that I'm a friend who comes back but isn't hanging around all the time. And um, I've just received permission from the Thai authorities to do research on this for another couple of years. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that because it does mean then that I will hopefully be able to develop a kind of intimacy with them that will allow me to understand these larger dynamics. Thank you, Michael. That was the perfect way of closing this interview. Thanks for watching. My name is Gonzalo Santos at the University of Hong Kong. You just watched the first episode of Technoviews a new online platform broadcasting interviews with major scholars on topics at the intersection between technology, society and culture in Asia and the world. See you next time.